All right, we are so glad that you uh, decided to join us today. We're so glad that you uh, hang, hung, hung on with us. We started a few minutes late. Uh, Microsoft decided to uh, update our computer, and so we uh, um, we decided to, to, to just go ahead and start late. So we're glad that you're here. Uh, my first semester in college, um, I started skipping school. Someone come help her, please. Uh, I started skipping, not school. I started skipping church. Um, I had been um, in a church all the days of my life, and, and every time the doors were open, we went to church. My parents didn't give us any uh, choice about that. If you were going to do anything else in life, you had to, um, you had to uh, go to church. And so when I got to college, my roommates, I had two roommates, and they decided they were going to go to church, and they were good guys, and they would get up, and they would get dressed, and they would decide that they... Um, they would ask me if I wanted to go with them. And so I started coming up with these excuses. I didn't want to go to church. And so I wouldn't go to church with them and, and I would sleep in. And then because I was very poor, I was a college student, I was very poor. And so I was on the 20 meal plan, which meant I had every meal, three meals a day, except Sunday evening supper. And I was broke. And so I had to have my lunch on Sundays or I was going to starve the rest of that day. And so I would skip um, church, but then I would go to, to the cafeteria to eat lunch long before the church people would come because I had always dated good church girls. And so I wanted the church girls to think that I went to church even when I didn't go to church. And so I was really pathetic. Now, when I would oversleep and I would, I would be running up close to the time that all the church people would come in, I would actually get up, fix my hair, put on my church clothes, go to the cafeteria so that everybody would think that I went to church. And, and then at a couple of months into this routine, God, God showed me just how lame, just how pathetic I was, what a hypocrite I was for, uh, for doing that. And so it, it took about two months for the Lord to get a hold of my heart and bring me back to the bride of Christ because I knew what, what happened at church. I've always loved going to church and I just got an attitude when I went off to college and I decided that nobody was in charge but me and God showed me that he's in charge and he brought me back into the faith about a couple of months into this whole deal. Now, the reason I tell you that story is, is because we've discovered that a lot of people have walked away from their faith. And we ask a question, what would it look like for an adult to come back to faith in Jesus Christ? And so this whole series has been about um, how do you start? How do you get back um, into this relationship with Christ? And so that's what this starting point series is. And if you've missed any messages, I want to encourage you to go to nlccp.com. That's our website. Or go to our Facebook page and, and watch all of these because they build upon one another. So please don't miss any of the, the past messages. Now, today I want to talk about something that I think everybody has done. So I think I know something about you, everybody that's listening online, and the eight people that are in the room. I think that everybody, whether they're Christian or not, everyone has tried to bargain with God. And by the way, okay, there it is. Everyone has tried to bargain with God. At some point in your life, you've tried this negotiation tactic with God, right? Um, so in just a minute, I'm going to ask you to, to respond on Facebook. And those of you here in the room, you can just respond verbally. But, but I, I don't want you to do it yet. I want to I describe this, and I want to see if everybody uh, understands this. We're doing true confessions today at New Life Community Church. I'm just giving you fair warning that we're going to do this, and we hope to kind of blow up our, our live feed today. Everybody has said something like, God, if you will fill in the blank, whatever your thing is, then I will fill in the blank. 
And so like you're driving home late again and you're gonna get in trouble again. And you said something like, God, I know you haven't heard from me in a long time. You may not remember me, this is John, um, but I really need my parents to be asleep. You know, this is when you're a teenager. I need my parents to be asleep because I'm gonna get in trouble again. God, if you will make my mom be asleep, then I promise I'll go to church. I promise I'll go to youth camp. I'll lead youth camp. I'll even put some money in the offering because I know that's what you want, God. Or if you've gotten a ticket, I was going to see Janie right after we'd gotten engaged on Christmas Eve and I got a ticket. Well, I started to get a ticket for going 70 in a 35 and I've never asked to get out of a ticket before. And I said to the guy, I said, dude, it's Christmas Eve. I just got engaged. I'm going to see my fiance. He said, I ain't, I'm not, I'm quoting. I ain't never let anybody off for doing twice the speed limit, but get out of here. And I said, bless the Lord, God, I will drive. And I did. I put it on 54. That was when the speed limit was 55 miles an hour. I put it on 54 miles an hour, and I didn't go over that the rest of the time. You see, in every religion, people negotiate with God. In fact, this may come as a shock to you, but even people who don't believe in God, even atheists will from time to time try to negotiate with God. They'll say something like, to whom it may concern, if there's someone out there I've reached my limit because you let somebody you love go to the doctor's office or go into the hospital and the doctors say, we don't know if there's anything we can do. And even an atheist will pray and say, if there's somebody out there, I need you to do this and we'll start to bargain with God. Uh, everybody at some point has tried to do this. Even if it's just God help me pass the test that I did not study for, right? You remember thinking back to college? So everybody's tried this. If you're ready to admit that, then I want you to type in on Facebook and say, I have, or yes, whatever, get creative with your answers. Any, everybody in the room, have you ever done this? Yes. Okay. Thank you. Now that's one thing I know about you. Let me tell you a second thing that I know about you. We don't follow through. We don't keep up our end of the deal. You got home, your mom was asleep. You're like, yes, but you didn't go to church. You're like, um, I don't need to go to youth camp. You told God that if, if he did something and if your situation worked out in your favor, you would do something with him, but for him, but you did not do something for God. You just thought, man, I'm so lucky. Your boss didn't notice. Your boss was sick that day or the birth control really came through for me this time. You didn't go to church. You weren't a better person. Now, let me give you a couple of, ex uh, of assumptions about bargaining with God, all right? Assumption number one, if you're going to bargain with God, is this. You assume that God knows you exist. This is the first assumption. If you've ever negotiated with God, whether you're a believer in God or not, it takes an incredible amount of faith to, to negotiate with God. You think God knows your name. You think God knows your circumstances. You think God gives a rip. That takes an, an incredible amount of faith. You have enough faith to believe that God heard you saying, God, I don't know if you care about my grades. I don't know if you care about my girlfriend. God, I don't know if you know. We've already got enough kids. Oh, God, please, no, don't let us have another one. I don't know if you have ever prayed those types of things, but if you have, whatever your thing is, it takes an extraordinary amount of faith to believe that there's a God who exists, there's a God who knows your name, there's a God who knows your circumstances, and this God cares. That, that's the first thing. That's the first assumption. If you've ever tried to negotiate with God, you assume God knows you exist, okay, or that, that God exists. Second assumption is you believe that you have something that God wants. Now, if you're negotiating with someone, you have to have something they want, they have to have something you want. This is common sense, right? 
And so people will say to God, well, God, I, I, I know what I want from you, but let's see, what do you want? How about a little bit of obedience? I've heard that's important to you, God. Let me dangle a little obedience in front of you. Ooh, or church attendance. I've heard that's important. Let me dangle some church attendance in front of you, God. Or, or some money. I've heard that's all you care about, or at least the people who work for you, that's all they care about. Let me, let me offer some money, God. Let's make a deal. I got to tell you, one of the things that differentiates the Christian God from every other God is this. The Christian God doesn't want something from you. As if you have anything the Christian God doesn't already have. The Christian God wants something for you. The reason there's no point in bargaining with the Christian God is he already has everything. You don't have anything he needs. And the Christian God wants to bless you. And there's this big theological word that, that, that describes this blessing that God wants to have for you. It describes the Christian God offering something to you that no other religion, no other God has. And it's this word, grace. Grace equals unmerited favor. That's the, that's the, the, Definition I've always remembered, and unmerited favor just means you cannot earn it. It is impossible to earn. Right after I graduated from college, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. And so I was working for this man in construction. He would build houses. He had some rent houses. And so I was, a, I was kind of a jack of all trades. I was a repair guy. And so I didn't have a place to go. I, I was working for him and, and he, I went to church with this guy. And so he said, he said, hey, why don't you move in with us? We have an extra bedroom. You can rent the bedroom. All your meals will be um, served for you. You know, you just pay a little bit of rent. And so, so my boss became my landlord. And this was also a guy that I went to church with. And so he gave me this incredible deal. And so I was working for him and I said, sure, I'll do that. Well, one day he had me go to one of his rent houses and remove some nasty carpet and so I rolled it up and I called him. I said, what do you want to do with it? And he goes, actually, that carpet's in better shape than the carpet in another rent house I have. I want you to go to the other rent house, take up that carpet and put that carpet in. I said, well, I'm going to need your truck. He had a 68 or 69 GMC pickup that was fully restored. It was absolutely beautiful. It sounded great. It looked great. And so I said, I, you know, the carpet won't fit in my car. I need your truck. And he said, okay, come get my truck. So I go get his truck. I load up the carpet. I go out to the other place and I put the carpet in. I'd never done it. And he would say, I trust you. I have faith in you. Just do the best you can. So I'm just making stuff up as I'm putting carpet in this, in this rent house. And, uh, so then when I finished, I was so proud of myself. I go to 7-Eleven and I get a big gulp. This was the big thing to do in Waco, Texas at that time was get a big gulp. So I got a big gulp and it wouldn't fit in the little, uh, the cup holder in, in my boss's truck. And so I'm driving home. I'm driving a little faster than I should. I come around the curve and what happens? My big gulp falls over in this immaculate truck. And so I, my first thought is I got to save the truck. And so I go down to try to pick it up. It's in the, in the floorboard of the passenger side. I go to pick it up. When I do, I pull the steering wheel and I go into the ditch. If you're out on the, in the country around Waco, Texas, what's usually in a ditch? It is mailboxes. And so I hit the mailbox while I'm looking down here. I look up just in time to see this mailbox make these two beautiful scratches across the hood, across this custom paint job. It lands on the, the, the windshield. I slam on the brakes. It goes back off and gives me a couple of more going that way. And I sit there and I went, Oh dear God, what did I just do? And so I sat there and my heart was beating and I thought, Oh, I got to go tell the, the people that I just destroyed their mailbox. So I go up and I knock on the door and, and this young mom, and she is not looking like she's happy in life. She's got a couple of kids and you know, she's, she says, what do you want? And I said, I'm so sorry. I destroyed your mailbox. If you'll give me a couple of days, I'll come back and fix it. She goes, Oh, don't worry about it. it happens all the time. My husband will fix it. And I'm like, really? And she goes, really? I said, you don't want, she goes, no. I said, okay, thank you, God. And I go and I get back in the scratch truck and I drive back to 
my landlord's house, which is my house and my boss's house and my friend from church's house. And I go and I sit in my room and I'm just going, oh, this is not going to go well. I hear him come in later in the day. And so I go out and I thought, I just got to get this over with. So I said, hey, I need to show you something. I take him out and I show him his, his custom truck. And I said, I said, I'm so sorry. I said, I'll pay to have it repaired. And he just looked at the truck. He just looked at the truck. And then he said, it's just a truck. He said, do you have the money to pay for it? He knew I didn't have the money to pay for it. The paycheck he owed me for two weeks of work, I maybe had, if, you know, if I got that paycheck that day, I might've had $200 to my name at that point. And part of it was in the check he owed me. And, and so I've never forgotten. He said, it's just a truck. You don't have to fix it. And I said, but, but I want to fix it. And he said, but you can't fix it. I said, you're right. And he said, so just accept it. You don't have to fix my truck. And what he gave me was mercy. I've never forgotten that he gave me mercy. Grace, though, is something deeper and bigger than mercy. Mercy is get, not getting what you do deserve. Grace. Grace would have been if he had gone and he had repaired the truck, paid to repair the truck, and then come in and handed me the keys and said, here, you can have my truck. That's grace. That's getting something you do not deserve. See, grace is what Christianity has to offer that no other religion has to offer. And true grace doesn't ever um, put the spotlight on the person who receives the grace. True grace, Christian grace, puts the spotlight on the one who gives the grace. If my boss had given me that truck, no one would have said, Doug, you earned that truck. They'd have gone, your boss is incredible. Can I get a job with him? I want to work for a guy like that. The focus is on the one dispensing the grace, never on the one receiving the grace. It was awesome that my, my boss showed me mercy, that, and I did not expect mercy. It would have been an HNL had he shown grace, a whole nother level. That's as, that's as ghetto as I can get. Sorry, Caleb just spit on, some, on his sister in front of him. Uh, the one who gives the grace is the one who has to pay for it. See, when you receive grace, you get something for nothing but it costs somebody something and it costs the one who gives it. And when you accept the grace of God, it is the most expensive free gift that you will ever receive. See, the person who dispenses the grace is the hero of the story in Christianity. God is the hero. Jesus is the hero of the story. In the book of Ephesians, Paul writes about this incredible word called grace. And Paul is like the perfect person to write about grace because when we first meet Paul, he is trying to kill or imprison Christians. He's trying to stamp out Christianity. He hates Christians, wants to get rid of Christians. And then he becomes one and he becomes the most famous Christian on the planet because if you're the guy who used to imprison and kill Christians, people are going, isn't he the guy? And he, they're going, yeah, he's the guy. What happened? It was this idea of grace. And so um, he becomes the most famous Christian in the years after Jesus died and he started more churches than anyone else at that time. So when he's writing Ephesians, he's actually in Rome, he's in prison. This is about 65 AD. So 30 years after Jesus resurrection from the dead. And he says this to believers in Christ in Ephesus. He says this, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Now dead means separated from God. 
So in terms of a relationship with God, it's like you didn't have one. Um, God was dead to you. You were dead to God. And this is what he says you were before you became a Christ follower. Now I need to tell you, there's three types of death. There's physical death. If you've ever had a pet that was run over, I finally, my mom quit letting me have pet dogs because we live next to a highway. They'd all get run over. Finally, she said, no more dogs. I'm tired of liking a dog and it getting killed. And I would understand very much when I was a kid, when I saw my dog get run over and the life left that dog, that's physical death. And if you've ever had a loved one die, you understand what physical death is. That's the first type of death. There's a second type of death called spiritual death. And that's to be separated from God. And you can't make yourself alive. God has to make you alive. There's a third type of death, which is called eternal death. Eternal death happens when a a person dies physically and they're separated from God. They've never given their heart to Christ. And then you go to a place called hell and you are separated from God for eternity. So there's physical death, there's spiritual death, death, there's eternal death. And what Paul is talking about here is spiritual death. He says, when you were dead, you were separated from God. You did things that all people who are separated from God do. They please their own selves. They, 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 um, they do anything they want to, to please themselves. That's what spiritually dead people do. And he says that, um, that, that we may have rules for our lives, but we don't, we violate our own rules. We have a conscience, but we do things that are against our conscience all the time. And he says, you can't even follow your own rules, much less can you follow God's rules. And because you're such a rule breaker, you deserve not just spiritual death, but you deserve eternal death, eternal separation from God. And so the first few verses of this chapter are, very, are not positive at all. They're incredibly negative, talking about death and, and all of this stuff. In the middle of the death talk, he uses two words. He changes everything. So In the Greek language, the the New Testament was written in Koine Greek, and in the Greek language, there wasn't a way to italicize words if you wanted to emphasize them. There was no way to highlight or bold the words so that they stuck out. The way that the Greeks would do it, if they wanted to emphasize something, they would put it at the first of the sentence. So these two words are at the first of the sentence in Greek, and there's one translation of the Bible that is a literal translation. It's the New American Standard Bible. And so just for verse four, I'm going to use that translation because I want you to see this verse translated exactly as the Koine Greek does, and it emphasizes the first two words, and here are those first two words, but God. Now, I gave a whole big lead up to that, and you're probably wondering why is that such a big deal. Let me tell you. Usually, when you admit some sort of problem, you say, but I will do better in the future. So um, I, I used drugs, but I will do better in the future. I got drunk and did something stupid, but I will do better in the future. Um, I, I lost my temper, but I will do better in the future. Um, God, I haven't prayed in a while, but I'll start doing better tomorrow. God, I haven't gone to church in a while, but I'm going to do better in the future. God, I messed up my life bad this time, but I will do better. But I, but I, but I, but I. And Paul would say, but I is what got you into trouble in the first place. If you want to be made alive, you have to grasp how big these two words are, but God. See, when you realize that you're dead in transgressions and sins, but I can't make myself alive. Can a dead person make themselves alive? No, they need somebody on the outside to either perform CPR or or charge up the defibrillator and shock you back to life. When you're separated from God spiritually, it means you're separated from the only one who can shock you back to life, and that is God. Dead means that you're separated from what you need to have life. And if you ever come to the point that you want to start over again with God, you want to come back to God, it will never be but I. It will always be but God. But God being rich in mercy. Um, I highlighted the word rich uh, because 
A rich person has extra, like if they're rich financially, they have extra money just lying around. God is so rich. He's so rich in mercy. He's got mercy just lying around his throne. And this is a big deal for Paul because Paul knew that God should have struck him dead where he stood because he was trying to kill Christians, those who followed the son of God. God should have looked down and said, you think you can mess with my family, Paul? Boom, and send these cracks of lightning. Paul's dead. There's nothing but a greasy, smoky spot where Paul used to be. That's what should have happened. But look what God does. God says, you think you're going to destroy my church? (laughs) I'm going to show you how rich in mercy I am. Could I have your attention, please, world? Look, I want to have your attention now. I want to introduce you to Paul, the former Christ, uh, Christian killer who now works for me. He's going to write half of the New Testament. He's going to start churches all over the known world. And the reason he's going to do that is because I'm so rich in mercy. I've got so much extra mercy. I chose a Christian killer to become the most famous Christian on the planet. So anybody who reads this and understands this idea would go, that's rich in mercy. So uh, here's what I want you to do. I was actually looking at myself and cracking myself up doing this earlier. So I want you to do this. I want you to look at somebody, whether you're online or here, and I want you to, to raise your eyebrows. I want you to nod your head and I want you to point your finger and say, that's rich in mercy. That's rich in mercy. I hope people are doing it all over Anderson County. I don't know if anyone is or not. That's rich in mercy. But God, being rich in mercy, so rich in mercy, he chooses a Christian killer to become the most famous Christian in the world. And then this next phrase, because of his great love with which he loved us. I don't know if I'm going to get through this. I want you to read that out loud with me. Because of his great love with which he loved us. Say it with me. Because of his great love with which he loved us. I want you to say it one more time because you've got to get this. Because of his great love with which he loved us. God, why do you care about me? Because of his great love with which he loved us. God, why why would you listen to my prayers? Because of his great love with which he loved us. God, why would you give me a second chance? Because of his great love with which he loved us. What have I done to deserve your attention? God would say it has nothing to do with you. It's because of my great love with which I love you. And and I I told... um, Rachel and Hannah, this, they came up on Wednesday and I was back there and I was typing my, my sermon. I'd do my transcript and I was listening to this song that we're going to be doing for, uh, for the Easter service and I just started weeping. I couldn't type. I was just bawling and I was thinking, God, why do you care? Why, why would you call me? Why would you use me? And for whatever reason, he brought to mind this, the song by Matthew West, The God Who Stays. And I'm just going to read this. If you're online, it's there, and, and we have them here in the room. But here's what the song says. If I were you, Matthew West is saying this to God, if I were you, I would have given up on me by now. I would have labeled me a lost cause because I feel just like a lost cause. If I were you, I would have turned around and walked away. I would have labeled me beyond repair because I feel like I'm beyond repair. And, and here's my favorite line that gets me every time. Somehow you don't see me like I do because I see failure. Somehow you don't see me like that. Somehow you're still here. You're the God who stays. 
You're the one who runs in my direction when the whole world walks away. You're the God who stands with arms open wide. And you tell me nothing I have ever done can separate. Nothing can make me dead to Christ. Nothing I have ever done can separate my heart from the God who stays. His great love for us is why we don't have to negotiate with God. Because he doesn't want something from you. He wants something for you. So here's what it says. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. He says it twice. You were double dead in your transgressions. And then here's our word. It's by grace. It's by grace you've been saved. See, God chose to unseparate you. (laughs) I know that's not a word, but we hyphenated it to make it look right. God chose to unseparate you because he wanted to. To make you alive spiritually means he unseparates you from God. And Paul tells us the reason he did it is because of his great love with which he loved us. Then in verse 8, he, he adds something to this grace idea. He says, for it is by grace, there's that word again, you have been saved through faith. He didn't say this earlier. He's making his whole case for this grace. It's all about God. And he says, through faith. It is not from yourselves, it's a gift of God. What this does is this takes us all the way back to the starting point of our faith with Abraham. You remember when God chose Abraham? It's the starting point of the Jewish faith. It's the starting point of the Christian faith. And he said to Abraham, I'm going to give you a child. And he says, look up at the stars of the sky. That's how many descendants you're going to have. And the Bible says that Abraham believed and God credited it to him as righteousness. It's the first time in recorded history that, that a person that we know that a person was made right with God and it's through believing. All he did was believe. And so when it says through faith, that means that we're going all the way back to the beginning, the starting point of our faith. And it's through believing that we come into the kingdom of God. He's taking us all the way back to, we talked about this um, last week and the week before, to the Passover when the children of Israel are in Egypt. And God says, take an an innocent one-year-old lamb, kill that lamb, drain the blood, put some of the blood on the doorposts. Had they ever put blood on the doorposts before? No. How do you know this is going to work? God said it's going to work. And God says, trust me, believe. And so the people who put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, that night the angel came and passed over their house. And don't you know the people who did not put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, they wish they had because their firstborn child died because they did not believe. But everyone who believed was protected. When he says through faith, through belief, it takes us back to the Passover. And it takes us back to John the Baptist we talked about last week when Jesus comes walking up and he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Lamb of God, not that's going to temporarily cover sins like all of those sacrifices in the Old Testament. It's going to be a human sacrifice once and for all that's going to take away the sins of the world. And then it takes us back to Jesus says, whoever believes in me will have eternal Life. We talked about it last week. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And then he kind of puts an exclamation on this whole grace deal when he says it's a gift. It's not a negotiation. It's not a bargain. It's not a trade as if you have anything God needs. And then just to remind us in verse 9, he says this, not by works so that no one can boast. Who can boast about this? No one. It's a grace gift you didn't deserve and you certainly didn't earn. So grace is all about God. And so here's the question that I want to ask you as we wrap up today. What standard are you going to use to determine where you stand with God? Abraham, it was belief. The Israelites, 
The Passover, it was belief. John, it was belief. Jesus, it was belief. What standard are you going to use? Are you going to use your behavior or God's grace? You have a choice, and some people will try to combine those two. Really, there's two choices, but some people say it's both. It's not both. It's one or the other. Most of us were raised to believe that it had something to do with our actions. We had to do something in order to please God, but that's not in the scripture. If I were to ask you, can you have right standing with God through your behavior? And you were to say yes, or maybe there's a little bit, I would say, show me in the Bible where that's true, because there's not a list of behaviors for you to get into the grace of God. It does not exist. All of the standards in the Bible, the rules in the Bible were given to people who were already in the family of God. They didn't get you in the family of God. Don't reach for the 10 commandments because the 10 commandments, God said, I am the Lord, your God who rescued you from Egypt, who delivered you from slavery. I did something for you before you ever could do anything for me. The rules are for you, my children of Israel. Don't reach for Jesus teaching because Jesus raised the standard so high. None of us could ever follow it. We would all fail because Jesus said, if you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery with her in her heart. He said, don't hate anyone. Don't call anyone a fool. He said all of those things. He raised them too high. When you open the scriptures, you'll see that nobody's good enough. So if the standard is your behavior and my behavior, then you're doomed, you're doomed, you're doomed, and you're doomed. Every other religion is about your behavior. But the guy who was all about behavior before he came to Christ, and the guy who wrote half of the New Testament said this, for it's by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It's a gift. It's a gift. It's a gift. Not by works so that no one can boast. So let's wrap this up. All religion is about these two letters, D-O, what you have to do. God, let's negotiate. But the Bible says that the Christian faith is about D-O-N-E. It's already done. When Jesus said it is finished, all the work had been done. All you have to do is believe. Dead people don't have to do anything but believe. Dead people don't have anything that the living God wants or needs. God says, I'm offering to make you alive. All you have to do is say, I believe. And here's the really cool part. All of the to-dos in the Bible, <laughs> we do them in response to what God has already to-done. All the to-dos in the Bible are a response to what God has already to-done. Do you know why Christians forgive? Because God forgave us. Do you know why we give? because God first gave. Do you know why we love? Because God first loved us. Do you know why we serve? Because Jesus, the night before he was betrayed, he put on a, a towel and he washed his disciples' feet and he said, go and do likewise. We serve because we've been served. You know why we submit and surrender? Because Jesus Christ showed us he submitted to his father. He surrendered on the cross so that he could purchase us. Why are we kind? Because God's kind to us. Everything we do in the Bible, all the to-dos, are a response of gratitude for what God has already to done. You know what a Christian marriage is? It's when two people who understand grace get married and they decided to treat each other the way God has treated them, and then they argue about it. They say, you first, no, you first, no, you first, no, you first. Let's do it your way. No, let's do it your way. Well, we did it my way last time, but that's okay. I want to do it your way, and they argue about it. <laughs> you try to out-surrender and out-submit one another, and when you do it right, it is awesome. It's because of Christ's death on the cross 
that we know God loves us. And anything I do out after that is out of a response for what God has already done for me. We sang the song, I didn't earn it. I don't deserve it. Still you gave your life away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. So I want you to say this phrase. I didn't put this on your list, and God, I should have. I want you to say, embrace the grace. One more time, embrace the grace. Because when you understand grace and you accept it, you receive it. The peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And I'm going to make this statement. If you do not embrace the grace, you will not have peace. You have peace with God, then you get the peace of God. That's why we sing Amazing Grace, because it never stops being amazing. And the less amazing you've been in your life, the more amazing God's grace is. The less likely you think you deserve it, the more amazing you're going to think that grace is. That's why the most gracious people you'll ever come around have embraced the grace of God. They know they don't deserve it. And then they turn around and they dispense grace to you. Can you imagine a church, especially during this time of the coronavirus, who all they wanted to do was embrace the grace of God and then dispense grace? I don't know if, if we've seen a church like that in our lifetime, but wouldn't you like to see one? So here's what I want you to talk about. Um, we've had some questions after each of these. Some of you are saying, but what about, and then there's some verse you heard. Maybe you heard a pastor back in the day and he was all about works or faith. I don't know what he's about, but he said something you're like, ah, the pastor said this, or there's a verse you know. Here's what I want you to talk about. What, whatever your what about is that keeps you from accepting the amazing grace of God. What is it that keeps you from accepting God's amazing grace? What is it about grace that you cannot grasp? That's what I want you to talk about this week. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this amazing grace. And, and when I think about it, I can't, I can't hold a grudge. I can't be bitter. I can't be selfish. When I have a boss and a landlord who didn't make me pay for a truck I wrecked, I remember mercy. I remember what you did on the cross. I can't be upset with, with people because... We were dead in our trespasses and sins. But you made us alive through grace. Make New Life Community Church into a church that is all about embracing grace and dispensing grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.